dramatic but we had to kick it up a notch for this week's guest who i'll introduce shortly i hope my home depot family had an excellent labor day weekend i'm eddie garfin and this is get to know your co the podcast born in a time of isolation where getting to know our coworkers is harder than ever usually we do this after our friday all hands meeting but with those going digital this is an opportunity to take a step back and find common ground with one another and maybe just maybe learn something we didn't know about our coworkers in the process. For the season one finale of Get to Know Your Co, I welcome the director of customer success, the wordsmith and former chef extraordinaire, Ezra Title. Welcome, Ez. Thank you, it's really good to be here. So I wanna start in a similar fashion to uh, the previous episodes where we start with the Home Depot journey. Uh, but Before we actually get to a point where we talk about your involvement at Ascuity early on and how that transitioned to Home Depot. I want to start even before that with your initial career, which was uh, involvement in the culinary arts. So I guess my first question is what drew you to being a chef initially? Yeah, so I I made the decision to become a chef when I was in university uh, studying first time away from home, uh, needed to look after myself and, um, I, you know, I come from a home where food is important. My mom, great cook. Uh, and so I started cooking to take care of myself and then, you know, started doing it for my friends and my roommates. Um, and I would say, you know, I've, I've always been somewhat of a creative person. I, I like to think of myself at least as a, a maker of sorts. Um, I'm quite kinesthetic. Uh, I like to, to work with my hands. I, I think I always wanted to do something in business that, that um, kind of uh, spoke to me. Um, I also like the, the late hours. I, I am a bit of a night owl. Um, and then I would say I also appreciated um, how hyper-focused you had to be. I mean, you are, are literally working in a, you know, two by two square foot space and, and you're sort of focused on, you know, what is directly in front of you. Although, you know, thousands of things going on around you and, and the camaraderie as well, I would say. Um, it's a really fun environment to work in. It is um, somewhat unprofessional by a lot of standards, but it, um, it, it can be really, really um, sort of fun to engage with your coworkers in a, in a casual way like that. So watching a lot of cooking shows, I noticed that in a lot of interactions, they say, yes, chef, no chef. Uh, is that is that consistent in kitchens or is that kind of just uh, for show? No, no, it's a it's a real thing. Um, so so the thing about being in a kitchen is um, it's very hierarchical um, and and everyone knows their place within the hierarchy. Um, there are very few appropriate answers to give when someone above you gives you instruction. It's either yes, chef, or no, chef. There's, there's, there's no gray area. Either you understand what they're saying and you're going to do it, or you don't, and maybe you need further clarification. But there's no discussion around, um, you know, is that the right uh, path to go down? Should we, should we flush this out a little bit more? Um, you're told something, and, and you should do it, and you should, you should do it really, really quickly. Uh, so, so that is a real thing. Uh, have you, have you, in your experience in the kitchen, ever seen any Gordon Ramsay-esque people uh, that oh are super <laughs> aggressive? Totally. I, I mean, so one, I, 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 um, I worked at a food festival of sorts in Northern California where Gordon Ramsay was there. It was before he got all TV-like, and um, but he's a pretty intense dude. Um, and absolutely, I mean, all the, listen, he, he plays it up. Uh, on on for for television purposes um and that's kind of become his his signature um but 
yeah, I mean, chefs I have worked for are really, really intense. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, I was working in New York um, at a famous restaurant called Danielle, a very well-known uh, restaurant by Danielle Baloud. Um, and it was, it was fairly early on in my tenure there. Um, and I was working alongside Danielle. So we were plating together. Um, and it's pretty nerve wracking to, to plate, uh, you know, or to work next to a, a chef of, of his caliber. And I was, I was still quite young. Um, I think we were, we were even plating um, Martha Stewart's last meal before she oh, went oh to gosh. the big house. Um, so <laughs> Just you know, some very influential. Yeah. Even though she was, uh, you know, convicted felon, still <laughs> very important person by, by restaurant standards. She was a regular at the restaurant. And I remember um, I had dripped a little bit of sauce around on the rim of the plate, which is a pretty normal thing. It happens, you know, thousands of times a, a day. And in fact, there are special um, napkins that you use to wipe the rim before you put it on the pass to, for it to go out to the customer. It happens all the time. It's like, it, it's not even a thing. And I just remember he laced into me. Um, but when he did so, he started out by saying, Ezra, and then he insulted me and, and sort of told me, you know, why I have to be more careful and, and, you know, all the things I was doing wrong. But for me, the silver lining was like, I didn't really hear anything he said after he said Ezra, because all I was thinking was, wow, Danielle Belude knows my name. I'm, <laughs> I've made it. I'm, I'm pretty good. So, um, you know, you don't take the insults to, to heart. And, and as long as they're not a regular occurrence, uh, then you're okay. And if a if a guy like Danielle knows your name, it means he's taking notice and, and you're in pretty good standing. So it almost sounds like what started off as uh, getting laced into actually ended up feeling like a compliment. I was thrilled. I was <laughs> thrilled. Yeah. Again, it's, 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 he, 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 for those that he didn't like, he would do it a lot. And, and that can be really hard. For those that he did like, he would do it seldomly um, and sometimes in jest. Um, and, you know, everyone can improve their performance. So to, to get some, some feedback, no matter how harsh is, is, at least in the kitchen environment, not so bad. Absolutely. In terms of all of the experiences that you've had, obviously you've, you've just outlined a couple that um, have been really... I can see on your face have really brought back some, uh, some great emotion and some great memories. Uh, what experience in your mind was the most fun for you? I think the most fun I had was at a restaurant in San Francisco. So it was my first uh, job out of culinary school, uh, a restaurant called Jardiniere, a very uh, celebrated female chef named Tracy Desjardins that actually closed a couple of years ago after 20 plus years um, um, at, at, in existence. Um, and that one was fun because, um, the people like it, it was, um, you know, we were all very serious about what we were doing. Um, but, uh, it had a, a really good kind of nurturing environment. And, you know, I think there's something, uh, to be said about a, a female chef bringing, you know, um, uh, maybe a softer side to the kitchen and, and don't get me wrong. Tracy is maybe the toughest person I know. I mean, to, to, to uh, be as successful as she is in the restaurant industry um, as a woman, you have to be tough as nails. Um, but she, she demanded a lot, but she also um, wasn't um, a, a meathead by, by any stretch. Um, and so there was just a, a really nice, um, feeling in the, in the kitchen, good camaraderie amongst the cooks. What achievement are you most proud of in the kitchen? So that's a good question. I, I don't know that I have an achievement in the kitchen that I'm most proud of. I would say that the achievement that I'm most proud of um, is, is the fact that I was able to have a successful career in the kitchen and maintain a marriage at the same time. Um, chefs are not supposed to maintain marriages. That's just not, uh, that's not what they do. They're not great at it, uh, men or women. And so uh, 
my wife is is an amazing person. She's um, she's very honest, and and she said to me from the beginning um, that she had no intention of being married to someone that she never saw, uh, or that she was going to raise kids by herself, which is often the case uh, for spouses of chefs. So you know, I think what I'm most proud of, which which you know, is probably going to segue into um, the next part of my career, is that. I did have a 15 plus year career um, and I maintained a marriage throughout, but then, you know, I also made decisions um, to pivot in my career um, and, and continue uh, maintaining that marriage uh, because it, it, you know, she, she is the, 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 the most important person in my life. So is it fair to say that the pivot in your career came about because you wanted to focus more on your marriage, give more time uh, to your family and just kind of bring that, that extreme out of whack work-life balance that chefs have and just try to balance it a little bit more? Yeah, balance is, is the key word. So um, for most of my cooking career, I, I was absolutely obsessed with food, um, singularly focused. I would go to sleep thinking about food and I would wake up the same way. And, and that's kind of what's required when you're cooking at a, at a very high level to, to be creative and, and to uh, continuously uh, try to put the best food you can uh, on a plate. It, it takes an insane level of commitment. What happened though was over time that changed and I found that I wasn't obsessing uh, about food. I wasn't finding the inspiration to be as creative as I needed to be. Um, and I would say that that period also coincided with the birth of, of my, my son and, and subsequently my daughter. Um, and I started to think that maybe I should consider a, a career shift. And um, what, I, what I really wanted was, um, I, I guess, you know, cooking is, is very one dimensional. It's kind of, if that's what you do, that's mostly all you do. And I wanted to have a, a multifaceted life. I wanted more balance in my life. Um, and, and so that's when I started thinking heavily about, um, switching up and I didn't know what that was going to be, but, um, you know, I started talking to people and, and figuring it out. So I guess this is the point where, you know, enter Toronto, enter Ascuity. Uh, how did you end up there? And what was it like working at such an early stage startup? Yeah, so so my first job away from from hands-on food was as a recruiter. So I, I, I was recruited to work at a, a hospitality recruiting firm. Uh, and I did that for about a year. It was great. I learned a ton, uh, you know, helped me uh, with, with sort of sales skills. Um, but I was pretty sure it wasn't a long-term role for me. Um, and then at about that year point, I bumped into Eric uh, outside our office. Is this where I'm supposed to give a shout out to Eric Green? Shout out Eric Green. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been listening to other episodes. That seems to be a thing. <laughs> do, you, do you want to do it? Shout out Eric Green. Yeah, shout out Eric Green. Um, I'm 44. I'm not sure I give shout outs, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Everyone gives shout outs out of Scooty. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I bumped into Eric. We actually know each other from our past. So, he was... Um, most people know this, but he was like my counselor at camp when I was, um, young, uh, I, I guess I was a teenager. Um, and we met for lunch. We were just sort of catching up and, and he was talking to me about what he was doing, setting up, he was literally setting up the office at, at Ascuity across from where I was working. Um, and he was looking for someone to take on a sales role. And we started talking about that and, and it sounded like something I would be interested in. It was, you know, um, setting up a, a function from scratch. I was always uh, comfortable with um, starting from nothing and, and um, making things up as you go. And, and because I was pretty sure that recruiting wasn't for, for me long-term, it was an opportunity that I, that I was really interested in. And so I basically started as a BDR. Uh, Pat and I were in the trenches together, calling, emailing prospects, and it was really exciting, very stressful. I did that for two years. 
And then we needed someone to oversee customer success once we had some customers that we had, had sold the, the program to. Um, and I applied for the, that role and that's pretty much where I've been ever since. Shout out Pat Forbes. Pat Forbes. And so that, that brings us close to present day. But yeah. one question around a SKUD pre-acquisition or I guess intra-acquisition was, uh, what was the acquisition process like specifically for you? And based on what you learned as you learned it, how did you approach managing both yourself going through this for the first time, uh, but also you have a lot of direct reports uh, that you needed to assist and kind of guide through this uh, kind of tumultuous time? Yeah, it was, it was a really exciting time. So I remember flying back from Atlanta with Eric, Neil, Heather, and Jeff. Um, we had just agreed to run a proof of concept for the Home Depot. And, you know, such a great opportunity um, and, and everything that we had been working towards. Um, but it was also extremely daunting, especially for the timeline that we had to work within. Um, and I remember, you know, we were on a, a late flight and I got home and I was taking a shower um, and running through all the reasons I was nervous and afraid about um, pulling off this proof of concept. Um, and I, I distinctly remember making a conscious decision to sort of check all of those thoughts and just dive into this without fear. And when we gathered together the next morning, and Eric asked us about any concerns that we had. Um, and I was clear at that point. I didn't have any concerns. I was ready to do it. And so, um, you know, we dove into the POC and it went really well. Um, managing my direct reports um, was similar for this period um, to, to managing you know, during regular business hours. Um, at that time, I worked with Krista and Teresa and Elise and, and a few others. Um, Krista was a manager and Elise and Teresa were CSMs. Um, and, and so here's the thing about working with great people. It doesn't matter whether you're running a very important proof of concept or you're preparing for a, a client call. The, the the right people will understand the importance of the opportunity and they'll dig in and they'll prepare and they'll execute as, as best they can to, to their abilities. And that's what we all did. We worked together to provide the same high level of service for the, the POC participants uh, that, that we always would. And, and, and it paid off. The, the POC was, was successful. The results were very positive. And then um, discussions began around um, the acquisition more in the background than anything. Um, I don't remember the exact timing, but I think we completed the POC in maybe September and we closed on the acquisition in December. So it all kind of happened very quickly. No doubt you learned so many things, both about yourself, about your team, um, and just about uh, how you handle these situations. Was there something in particular that stood out to you as kind of the biggest learning or something that once you had a chance to take a step back and reflect, um, this was the thing that you were going to uh, carry forward with you from that experience? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think from a personal standpoint, um, I think what I, what I learned was that I'm capable of much more than, than I'm aware of. Um, and, and I, I think we all are. Um, and sometimes we just need to be pushed. I think uh, Eric was um, the right leader to push us um, to, to pursue and, and, and to uh, be successful with an opportunity like this. Um, and so, you know, he, he provided the opportunity, but, you know, it was up to each of us to um, make sure that we could execute on it. And so um, if, if you had asked me, uh, I guess, eight years ago now or nine years ago when I was still cooking, if I would be capable of um, working at this level in software or, or in retail with a, an organization like Home Depot, I would think you were crazy. Um, and so I think what I've learned is I'm, I'm quite adaptable and, and flexible and, and pretty good at figuring things out as I go. And 
um, surrounding myself with um, people who are are way smarter than I and and you know together we're we're able to pull off some some really great things. So speaking of some of the the change or some of the growth that you you saw, one of the areas that saw the largest growth was just going from supporting maybe a hundred customers on one tool uh, to supporting a thousand, over a thousand across three very different tools. So yeah. I guess, how did you, how did your approach to managing, to strategizing and to executing change a little bit as you and your teams had to take on this different, um, but also additional responsibility? Yeah. So, um, I mean, huge learning curve, obviously. I, I remember our first meeting uh, when Eric and I met with Nathan Burns and Rich Atala. Shout out to Nathan and Rich. Um, and Rich said, you know, we, we've spoken with some of your customers and, and one thing that they all mentioned is the high level of service that they receive from the customer success team. Um, and I was beaming, I was so proud of our team. And, you know, I talked a, lot, a little bit about our approach and then Rich said, so how are you going to scale that from 100 companies to, to thousands? And, and, you know, I think I gave Rich a, a good enough answer about using content and automation to, to scale up. And, and you know, I, I assume it went over okay. But I remember thinking, good Lord, <laughs> good question. How are we going to do that? And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a monumental task. But for me, it all comes down to hiring. If, if you hire the right people and and... Um, then you can take on any size project. And, and I'm so lucky to be surrounded by such a great team. Um, Pat, Teresa, Fazzy, Dawn as, as the managers, um, are, you know, they're so good at what they do and, and dedicated to the mission. And in turn, they've done a, spectac a spectacular job assembling their teams with a great diversity of experiences. And, and so I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm so lucky to be surrounded by such talented people. Um, and then, you know, how do you approach managing and strategizing and, and executing change? I think um, I spend more time strategizing um, and leave a lot of the managing and executing to my managers. They are, they are kind of the experts in, in each of their uh, domains. And, and so they're, they're great at what they do. And I'm here to set the strategy and make sure that they have the tools and the resources to execute. Um, I'm a sounding board for them. Um, and so I, I think we have a, a, a nice sort of division of responsibilities where we, we all know our lanes um, and we, we generally stay within them. And so it, it, it turns into a pretty good outcome most of the time. And so obviously there's strategizing, which is one thing, but then you actually have to go and implement this entire plan um, and actually get suppliers on boarded. And so did you have a moment once we hit the ground and suppliers started getting on boarded and we started to um, actually get them up and running on the tools? Is there a moment for you where you had a kind of a sigh or a moment to just say, wow, okay, we actually, we did it. The plan, the plan has gone more or less according to the plan. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there have been a, a couple. So, so number one, like the acquisition itself, that was a, a big moment where we said, you know, okay, we did it. Um, I would say the second one was after we onboarded our first set of suppliers to the program. So it was approximately a year ago, um, and we had been building uh, towards that time for uh, not quite a year. It was probably 10 months or so. Um, and, you know, there, there was a lot of unknown um, in that period. We had been doing a lot of planning, um, but, you know, you can, you, can, you can only plan so much. What, what did Mike Tyson say? Uh, everyone's got to plan until they get punched in the face. And so onboarding those, those suppliers, that was our moment to get punched in the face. And so I would say getting those, those first handful of suppliers, that was kind of the, the big one for me where... Um, we we started interacting with suppliers and training them and onboarding them and, and they were interacting with the tools um, and it was all kind of working. So that, that felt really good. Reflecting back to something you said a little bit earlier around uh, why you wanted to move away from being a chef and start uh, in a different field about trying to strike a balance between work and family, 
uh, obviously you have hobbies too, um, but you're such a driven and motivated person. So how do you make sure that you are striking that balance? Um, and then how do you know, or how do you check yourself uh, when you're out of balance? Mm. Um, generally people tell me, and by people, I mean my wife, um, or, or, you know, maybe um, my relationships don't feel as solid as I would like them to, or I feel disconnected um, from people. I would say that's kind of how I can tell whether, whether things are in balance or not. I mean, I've, I've come a long way from cooking where, where I was singularly focused and, and that was all I did, uh, you know, six days a week, probably 15 hour days. That was, that was fairly consistent. So I've, I've come a long way since then. Um, but, but certainly, um, you know, it's, it's easy to, it's all relative and it, it's easy to get out of balance uh, these days as well. Um, but generally it's, it, for me, it's about the connections and the relationships that they, they lose something if, I, if I'm not uh, in the right frame of mind. And so once you, once you've recognized this, this imbalance, mm. what steps do you typically take to course correct and get back to where you want to be? Um, so, so this is a, a little bit revealing. So my wife is a psychotherapist. Um, and so we, we, we are firm believers in psychotherapy. It pays, it pays some of the bills. And, and I would say, you know, therapy, therapy helps. Um, it's a, it's a great way to gain perspective on, on your life and to have kind of an objective individual kind of, um, reiterate back, you know, what they're seeing and, and, um, you know, it's very easy to kind of miss connections that are happening in, in your life. And so, um, I think that's a, that's a really good way to do it. And, and so, you know, you can have a professional do it or, or you can also have individuals do it. And, and so, um, I think to, to course correct it also, for me, it helps to connect with the people that are important in my life. So my friends and my family. In terms of hobbies that you have, obviously probably still have um, a passion for cooking, although uh, not as bright a burning flame. Um, mm. And you, you like reading, you're, you're into fitness, you're into design. Uh, I kind of want to touch on each of those, but maybe we can start with cooking since that's all we're most familiar with. Um, yeah. Have you lost any enjoyment for cooking, having been a chef and having worked insane hours uh, so intensely? Or, it, or are you still enjoying it almost as much as you did when you initially got into it? Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of all of that. So when I first stopped cooking there, there was probably about two years where, um, I avoided it as much as, as much as I could. Um, but then after that two years, uh, I kind of came back around to it and, and rediscovered it. And, and, um, I would say that the passion is still there. I, I have no desire to do it professionally. That just doesn't appeal to me anymore. Uh, but I love it as a hobby and, and I've sort of gotten into things that I'm interested in. Uh, so, you know, I bake bread, um, I make pickles. I've got 80 jars of pickles that are fermenting in my basement right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the, the love of it has returned not to the extent that it was before, but it's probably healthier than it was before. Yeah. I, I remember the, the sourdough that you brought in a few times unbelievable yeah well when i when i first started baking bread um you know there's a lot of experimenting that happens and a family of four can only eat so much bread so i would i would bring in um a bunch of loaves to work and that was fun it's always fun to to share uh your creations with with those that you know you have relationships with and and that doesn't end for me i still love entertaining we entertain a ton um, or, or did pre COVID, hopefully that returns at some point. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it is, it is great to, to share, um, your talents with people, uh, in that capacity. So I'm going to ask you to put on your critic hat for a second with mm. respect to restaurants in Toronto, maybe in Atlanta too, if you've had enough, uh, meals in Atlanta to uh, make a suggestion, but in Toronto, is there a must-visit restaurant, in your opinion? 
That's interesting. I mean, I would say, so this is not a tip. This is more like uh, a plea for help. I think um, all restaurants are, are must visits at this point. Rest, restaurants, especially smaller independent ones are are really in danger of clo- closing due to COVID. And, and you know, I, I thank my lucky stars every day that I'm uh, I, I did make that pivot. I, I was so close to opening a restaurant and, and I didn't at the last moment. And, and, and uh, my wife and I on, on a consistent basis uh, say to each other, like how fortunate or lucky are we that we do, we dodged that, that bullet. So um, I think, yeah, all, all restaurants need to be visited now at some point or, or, you know, um, take out from from those restaurants, especially the neighborhood restaurants, as much as possible. In Toronto, you know, I've, I've got a good friend named Anthony Rose. He's got several restaurants that I love, um, Rose and Sons and and Big Crow and Fat Pasha. Um, I think he's he's known as the king of comfort food in Toronto, and and his places are really fun. I, I love his food. Um, Atlanta's got amazing food. I, I can't think of any restaurant names offhand, um, but the barbecue is spectacular. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think Atlanta's a, an amazing food city. I remember the first time I had uh, barbecue in Atlanta. I think it was actually at Jim and Nick's. And um, my whole life sh- sort of shifted. I, I had realized in that moment that I had never had real barbecue. And so... Mm. Um, it was it was kind of eye opening for me that this this level of barbecue existed somewhere. It's a real sort of uh, um, niche talent. Like like there is great barbecue, and then there's there's barbecue, and it has become uh, it's become so popular lately. Although it's something that's been around forever, and and yeah, there there are different styles of barbecue, and and Atlanta is is probably one of the best. Um, cities in the world for for barbecue um our our partners at the ssc in atlanta are very fortunate to have access to that all the time oh yes oh yes indeed uh we do have sushi though i will say that um but shifting from one one art to another if we can talk a little bit about literature what you enjoy reading uh thinking about all of the books um that you may have given to other people or just in conversations that you may have recommended uh, is there a book that you have recommended most frequently to either your friends or colleagues uh, or maybe people in your family? So I, w- I would say there are two, and, and I, I think they, they're two very different books with, with some similarities. So the first one is, I think it's called That'll Never Work, and it's, it's the Netflix origin story. Um, and it's an amazing recounting of how it all happened. Basically started with a conversation in a car uh, between um, two really smart individuals who were just commuting to work every day um, and, and just sort of how that all developed. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a, an amazing personal recounting of that story. And then the second one um, is called maybe you should talk to someone i think and that one is a personal um recounting of a therapist's um journey through therapy herself um so you have someone who is very self-aware um coming to grips with things that she's not aware of that that you know, are pointed out by her own therapist. Um, and so I, I yeah, I, I guess I, I went through a period where I was reading a lot of uh, nonfiction and, and those two were, they're, they're great stories, but they're, they're personal and, and they're, they're true. And, and they both um, capture the moment and, and, and their feelings really, really well. So I'd recommend both of those a bunch. Yeah, I have to uh, give a quick shout out to Emily Braclassic because she put me on to a book called When Breath Becomes Air. And mm. it's an autobiography uh, from one of uh, the leading um, neuro doctors who discovers that he has uh, late stage cancer as mm. his career is kind of getting to the point where he had this entire roadmap of where he was going to go to school. He had a dream job. Um, he worked really hard to become a prominent physician. And 
just as he's about to realize all of these dreams, he realizes he doesn't have quite as much time as he thought he did to actually enjoy those things. And yeah. so it's, it's an interesting perspective uh, or I guess way to think about um, the world when we think of doctors and uh, people who are very well educated, they're subject matter experts, who do they go to for, for these types of issues or the issues that they yeah. typically deal with? So uh, that book just came to mind when you, when you were talking about um, maybe you should see someone. Well, I, I think it's also interesting, especially in these times where, um, you know, we're, we're realizing that we don't have as much control over our life and our surroundings as, as we thought we did. And, and also, um, do we put plans on hold for the future when um, we don't know how, um, not how secure our future is, but just what the future looks like? Um, you know, I think that the traditional way of operating was you, you work as hard as you can until retirement. And then at retirement, you have fun. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe, maybe we have to sort of intersperse more um, enjoyment into our, our day-to-day because um, maybe traveling as, as wide and far as we wanted to um, isn't as readily available as it once was. So yeah, I think people's ideas about what they can do later on and, and how much control they have over that might be shifting a little bit. Absolutely. I think a lot of people, at least with the borders closed down in Canada, a lot of people have been taking this opportunity to explore more of their own country. So I've seen a lot of friends go to Banff and Jasper, uh, maybe head out East. And so in, in a way it's, it's, shifted people's focus away from maybe some of the more obvious or more um, foreign destinations and just focused on the, the beauty that Canada uh, and in a lot of cases, the U S uh, has to offer as well. Totally. Moving over to pro- probably your favorite uh, topic to discuss offhand, the fitness mm. world, the wide world no, of no. fitness, if it mm. were uh, named by Disney, <laughs> Disney, um, how long have you been actively interested in fitness other than uh, the extreme sport of being a chef? Um, so I would say I have had a, an on again, off again relationship with fitness since I was a teenager. Uh, I got heavily into um, like working out when I was in high school. Um, I go in fits and spurts. I mean, I get really into it. Um, and I'm, you know, slightly obsessed at times, uh, where I've got a notebook and I'm tracking every single rep that I'm doing. And and my wife is constantly rolling her eyes at me, like get a grip. Um, and then I will sort of drop off and it will be months of, um, sour cream and onion chips and, and avoiding, um, exercise at all costs and, and maybe some self-loathing in there as well. Um, so when I'm into it, um, I love it. Um, and it's, it's probably tied directly to um, your earlier question about balance and, and connection and, and relationships. I think when I'm feeling good about myself, um, I'm more likely to take care of myself and nurture myself with, with proper uh, diet and exercise. Totally. It, it almost feels like a, like an echo chamber of sorts where after a workout, the last thing you want is a really greasy burger, right? You, you reach for the salad, but if you don't work yeah. out, you're more likely to eat unhealthy. And then it just, it's just a, a self-perpetuating cycle. And mm-hmm. next thing I know, finished an entire large bag of all dressed chips in one sitting. Yeah. I don't totally. know how I got there. Yeah. So looking at, you've obviously had, uh, quite a bit of time to experiment, to find some things that work for you, some things that might not work for you. Um, Mm. And so my question is what new practice or habit, and this could be either, uh, you know, an exercise habit, or it can be uh, something to work on your, your psychology or your nutrition. Uh, So what new practice have you gained the most from uh, in the last couple of years and how does it fit into your fitness regimen? So I would say there's two, uh, and, and they go together. Um, so one is intermittent fasting. Um, and so I, when I, when I'm doing it well, I'm doing kind of a, a um, 
16 hour uh, fast followed by eight hours of eating. So I'll stop eating at, you know, seven or eight o'clock and then I'm not really eating until the next day at around lunch. I, I find that very useful because it's, it's pretty black and white. Like either I'm eating or I'm not, it's the gray area that I'm not great at. Um, so that's number one. And, and, and I actually kind of enjoy it. Um, and it's really just not snacking at night and then skipping breakfast and, and I'll still drink coffee. The second one is tracking uh, what I eat. So I use an app, my fitness pal to um, just track what I'm eating. I think um, it has been shown that if you uh, document what you're eating, you're more likely to um, eat in a more nutritious manner. And so that's been really helpful for me. That one is, um, is sometimes easy to fall off of. Um, you know, if you miss a day and then you start thinking, oh, I missed a day, so I don't have those uh, calories, fats, carbs, and, and protein tracks. So, well, why even bother doing it today? <laughs> um, <laughs> I might be an all or nothing kind of guy. But um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I was off that for a while and I actually just got back onto it this week. Um, and so I would say those are the two that I've been doing and, and they're pretty helpful for me. When you track, do you weigh your food? No, I, I mean, I have, but generally, no, I, I try to do it more by eyeball and um, actually, sorry, let me say that again. In the beginning, I was weighing my food because I think it's really difficult to know quantities without weighing things and, and being accurate. Um, once I kind of got the hang of what four or five ounces of protein looks like, then, and, and I realized that it, it, it's much less than I thought, um, then I, I think I stopped. Um, but yeah, every now and then I'll, I'll measure the volume of things. I, I tend to not do a ton of weighing with scales. I've played around with tracking on my fitness pal too. And I'll start off super diligently. I feel almost like a mad scientist. I have the, the scale out. I, I have the bowl. Then I zero out the weight of the bowl. And then I'm like, okay, this is perfect. And then I start pouring in food and I feel, I feel great. And then somebody from my family, maybe it's my sister. I don't know. Somebody comes in and absolutely lambasts me for weighing my food. She goes, oh yes, the, the extra three blueberries are going to be the difference for you. Really? Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, no, why, it's, why, it's why, not, why am I measuring? It's not the why extra three blueberries. It's like the extra five ounces of, of, of steak. And, and you think it's, it's not that much. Um, so, I mean, the, the, for me, the hardest part is the time that it takes uh, to actually plan your meals and then to organize all of it. It's, it's very time consuming, but when I'm into it, I, I like it because I like, that process it's it's a little bit like cooking like you know being very prepared and putting all of your your things where they need to be um if i don't have uh if, if i have the time in the evening then it's it's a fun endeavor for me if i if i don't then it's just another chore yeah for sure and it, i have a, a sort of a passion for personal financial planning just to mm -hmm. completely bore everyone that's listening right now um mm -hmm. but i find it's like the calories you get each day is really about budgeting it in a way that you feel like you're getting a good return on your, your investment. So I know yeah. like I picked blueberries off the top of my head because I know that uh, they're pretty low in caloric density. You can eat a lot of blueberries for not that many calories. And it's right. like when you're weighing uh, metaphorically, not literally the, the blueberries against this maybe um, like fruit bar, this processed fruit yeah. bar. And it's like, yeah. I could probably I wouldn't be able to eat enough blueberries to match the calories in that fruit bar. Right. So it's just like, you feel like a sense of satisfaction when you not only make the right choice, it's going to be healthier for you, but yeah. you get to enjoy that selection as well. Right. Yeah. No, I'm with you. So the last thing that I want to talk about today, uh, before we hop to rapid fire, recognizing we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, yeah. One, one thing that we've there that you've been consistent about in a lot of conversations that we've had in the past um, is about the importance of building strong relationships. And so mm -hmm. I want to start with uh, something that we've preached since day one of the customer success team, which is uh, being customer focused or customer centric, as you call it. Uh, so mm -hmm. what is customer centricity uh, and why is it important 
uh, for customer success or for any other team for that matter? So as a customer, I think that there is nothing more frustrating than feeling like you are not being understood or, or cared for. Um, and I think good relationships and empathy can elevate a good experience with a product or service to a great experience. Um, and it can also help you out of a pickle if you're falling short of your customer's expectations. Um, and so it's, it's our job to understand our customers, to know what will delight them and and it's not the same for everybody. So it requires flexibility and, and, and being intuitive. Um, that to me is kind of the epitome of customer centricity. And, and I think some of it comes from when I, you know, when I was coming up in food, um, I wonder sometimes if there was a different mentality back then when, you know, there, there really, was this this feeling of the customer is always right and and you try to uh, anticipate what your customer needs and 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 provide it to them i feel like um maybe there's been a bit of a shift in certain business segments where um there's this idea that maybe the customer isn't always right maybe that's not the right customer for me and, and so that's fine. It's just not necessarily how I came up in, in my professional development. Um, I like to try to analyze every customer and figure out what is going to delight them rather than saying, if I can't, then maybe they're not the right customer for me. When you say, or uh, you speak about delighting customers, it kind mm -hmm. of reminds me of the Marie Kondo, um, does it spark joy? Like it's that same kind of uh, turn of phrase where um, it, it really is a feeling manifesting itself uh, into um, an objective. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think, um, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of, of great, very customer centric chefs who, who literally draw blood, sweat and tears to try to, um, appease their customers and, 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 and be customer centric. I think that that term delight our customers. I think I actually heard that first from Ted Decker. Um, when, when he was speaking with us, I, I really appreciated the phrase and, and I think it is, um, a tenant that, that the Home Depot, uh, really does follow. For those that might be listening and for myself as one of those people, uh, looking to improve the relationship building and really, build stronger relationships moving forward. Um, what are a few, maybe two or three key tenets uh, to keep in mind as you go about improving your relationship building skills? Um, so I would say number one, to give more than you receive. Um, I mean, that's, I'm, I try to be a, a giver and, and, um, I get more joy out of giving than I, than I do receiving. Um, I would say number two is to practice authenticity, provided that your authentic self is one that that uh, appeals to people. Let's let's assume that it does. Um, <laughs> but I think um, cookie cutter doesn't work. I, I don't think we all need to be the same. So I think um, being your authentic self is is a is a really good place to start. Um, and the last one I would say is don't be transactional. Um, it's, it's easy to, um, sort of go back to someone if you need something, it's, it's a lot harder, but, but more worthwhile if you maintain relationships on an ongoing basis so that, you know, if for, for any reason you do need something, then it, it doesn't feel transactional. So I would say those are the three. Yeah. And in a way it sounds uh, like the third point kind of ties back into that authenticity. It's maintaining a, a connection with someone, not because you need something or you have an ask, but just maintaining uh, based on a friendship or based on a, a mm -hmm. mutual understanding. Right. Yeah. And so just before we get into our rapid fire segment, which as you know, ends all of our episodes, uh, we mm -hmm. don't usually do this. I would love if, if this became a little bit more common, but we had a question from one of our listeners uh, the question was from Pat Forbes, um, and he wanted to know 
how would you describe your relationship with Eric in one word? Only one word. Only one word. Hmm. Maybe we can make it a I, compound word. No, I, I mean, I think the word I would give is comfortable. Um, and, I, and I say that, well, am I, supposed to, am I supposed to now explain it or do I just give the word <laughs> and we move on? <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, we, we, we have a, a certain comfort level with each other, um, which allows us to be very honest with each other. So um, we, um, you know, I, I think uh, we're, we're, or I am loyal to him um, and, and honest with him um, every opportunity I get, because I, I feel like that's my role to, to tell him, you know, when I think things are working or, or when I think there are opportunities for improvement. So I think that comfort level that we have creates sort of a safe space where we can be honest with each other. Perfect. So let's tie this up with a bow rapid fire. We'll use 30 seconds of the final minute and get this, get this done. What, what is your favorite movie? Goodfellas. Fruits or veggies? Veggies all the way. What workout exercise do you dread the most? Uh, any, anything that is like a wind sprint, like a, a, a suicide or, or, you know, like where you have to sprint for long periods of time where the goal is to make you as sick as possible. <laughs> That's the worst. No, thank you. Chef's perspective, does pineapple belong on pizza? Yeah, sure. Why not? I, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules. I'm, I, I like sweet, sweet and savory, so for sure. That does it for season one. Special thank you to Ezra for making the time to join the show. Uh, to everyone that's supported the podcast throughout the season, whether you've been a guest, a listener, or both, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's really been a great ride. For the final time this season, I'm Eddie Garfin, and this has been Get to Know Your Co.